Hello, and welcome to the Needs Improvement Podcast, your regular deep dive into reimagining mental health and well-being in the workplace. I'm your host, Nicholas Whitaker, coach and co-founder of the Changing Work Collective. In every episode, we sit down with thought leaders in organizational health, as well as individuals who've navigated the complexities of mental health, well-being, and belonging in the workplace. Our goal? To dismantle the stigma surrounding mental health, ignite meaningful dialogue, and inspire both employees and leaders to revolutionize the way performance is gauged at work. So if you're eyeing a healthier, happier chapter in your professional life, you're in the right place. Together, let's transform the places we work into the places we would love to be. Let's dive into what needs improvement. Well, hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Needs Improvement Podcast. I'm Nicholas Whitaker, your host, and I'm here with Emma Lawrence. Emma, hello. How are you today? I'm great today, Nick. Thank you for having me here. Oh, it's so good to see you again. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Let, let the audience know what you're up to these days. These days, I'm a life transition coach. I'm a certified life coach. I work with people in major life transitions helping them when they can't see their way forward to find other ways to reinvent their lives and build dreams to live in, actually. I love this so much. It's really aligned with a lot of the work that I do with my clients as well. I'm curious, like your perspective on what a transition coach does. I know you just mentioned like kind of moving through major life transitions, but what are some examples of that that somebody might run into? Yeah, exactly. Actually, anything from recovering from a divorce to entering a major job transition, finding a job that's better suited, going into an entrepreneurship, or having been asked to leave a situation, a job, and needing to find something else, which throws you into a completely different narrative and scenario. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I know a little bit about that myself. So I'm kind of curious, you know, as you're working with folks that are kind of going through transition, like what are some of the things that people often come to you that they're struggling with or like that they're challenged with that you're able to help move them through? I'm able to help them see more clearly and gain confidence. And I think those are two big things. Sometimes when we're in a transition, it's like being in the dark. You know, I like to think of life transitions because my background is in the creative arts, is in theater and music in New York City and in education as well. I like to think of the transition as when we're standing on stage and the set begins to crumble around us. And here we are. And what's real in this situation? We're the only thing that's real. We're the one that's standing there. And yes, it's as if there is a platform that is going to turn on a turntable and a new set is going to come in. But we don't know what that new set is yet. And we're not sure where our anchor points are. So it can be a time of real needing illumination, needing help navigating. It's how do I take care of myself in the midst of this transition when things are turning around me? How can I ground in what I'm skilled at, what I'm best at, what my dreams are? And how can I allow this to be a gracious and enlightening moment in my life? The, the great thing about transitions is that they are a fabulous opportunity and an unparalleled opportunity to actually create, as I said, and build a dream to live in. When mm -hmm. do we get that choice? You know, if we're going mm -hmm. about our daily life, when do we get the choice to do something different, to do something more aligned? So it's kind of like, you know, bless the transition. 
Mm, yeah, yeah. You know, I think what comes up for me and what you're sharing here is like this idea of liminality or a liminal space, like that yes. kind of in-between period in time that yes. I feel like so many of us trying to rush through. It's like, I always think of the, the analogy of like an airport or like a train station or like the hallway of a hotel. It's like, you don't pay much attention to the corridor. You're really just trying to get to your destination. And what I've learned in my life, I'm kind of curious if this is something that you've come through as well, is like you learn so much more about yourself during those transition points than you do in just about any other period of your life. Is that something that you've encountered yourself? A hundred percent, yes. And I'd love to be able to tell a story of perhaps my most major transition in this life. In my late 20s, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. But here is how this story played out. And there are moments in this story that really illuminate what you're getting at, Nick, in your work with work culture and with mental health. Yeah. So I'm at the Thanksgiving dinner table. I'm 28. And I'd come home to Rochester, New York, from New York City for that holiday. And I'm sitting at the dinner table. And someone tells a joke. And I laugh. And I hear this. I, I feel this sensation in the back of my, of my head. And I thought, that's odd. So Monday morning, I'm flying back early to, of course, get back to work on Monday in the city. And I feel nauseous on the plane, which is completely unusual. And by the time I get on the, the bus to go into Midtown Manhattan, I get sick. And mm -hmm. fortunately, no one's in the seat next to me. I have a paper bag with me. And I only mention this detail because of what happened next. I get off the bus. And I throw the paper bag into the trash can of 42nd Street and I go to work. Mm. Now, what? You know, this, this is a culture that I was raised in. The culture that says that work is more important than my health, that mm -hmm. I'd be letting people down if I didn't show up at work, or that I wouldn't be toughing it out, you know, if I didn't show up at work, right? Mm -hmm. So this is just one of those moments when there's this realization of just what we're dealing with in our culture. And if I kind of skip the timeline, the timeline ahead to later in life, when I taught theater at one of the best prep schools in the country, I saw that we're still teaching our kids that work is most important. We're still teaching our best and brightest that they need to compete that they need to, you know, in this case, prep for Ivy League schools mm -hmm. and that they're expected to sacrifice their physical and mental health to do so. Mm. Even among well-meaning faculty and well-meaning administrators, this culture is very ingrained. And in order to be aware of it, we need to just pay attention and make adjustments. Mm. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious, you know, from your perspective, too. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that story. That sounds like quite uh, an ordeal to go through. And I'm kind of curious, like, you know, how that ended up resolving, you know, yes. uh, you know, it sounds like you it made yourself made it to work. <laughs> yes, yes. What, what happened next? What happened next? Exactly. I made it to work. I wasn't feeling well for a couple of weeks. I got to see a doctor who put me on antibiotics when the antibiotics didn't work. She told me to see a neurologist. And by now I'm into late December and I'm trying to get an appointment and I can't. And my dad says, why don't you come back here and see my doctor? Right after the new year, I went back to see the doctor and he couldn't find anything either. They thought I had a stubborn viral inner ear infection. 
hmm. that it was affecting me by I was dizzy. I would get really dizzy and I would get nauseous because I was dizzy. This went on for all of January. Wow. I kept getting more sick. I couldn't read because the book would spin. I couldn't watch TV because the TV would spin. So I was just really in it and I was losing weight and all this, right? So finally, after weeks of this, I, I lose it. I mean, I just, just started crying one night and I can't do this anymore. And my dad put me in the car and said, we're going to the emergency room. We go to the emergency room. They can't find anything. They tell my parents, my mom met us there. They tell my parents it's psychological. Mm. Give me Valium and send me home. Mm. So here's the second point about mental health here. Mm -hmm. When we don't understand the landscape of what someone is experiencing, we will make a judgment. We will make a judgment based on not enough information mm -hmm. that can really impact their lives. So we have to be careful when we think someone is crazy. Yes, mm -hmm. there may be something going on that's physical. There may be something that in this whole world of neurodiversity and how we look at things differently and different perspectives and different ways of processing in the brain. It's really important to pay attention to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and what comes up for me with this, too, is, you know, you speak about neurodiversity and like various different ways of of people struggling within the workplace or struggling within these different environments. And I think there's such a lack of information and lack of understanding of mental health uh, within, well, within culture broadly, but within the workplace in particular. And I think it's very easy for folks to kind of make those assumptions and jump to some sort of a conclusion and say like, oh, that person is just being lazy or that person is just like, doesn't care or what have you when what might actually be happening is that there's like this underlying issue, you know, in this case it was a, a tumor, you know, in other cases, maybe it's a systemic issue within an organization that's causing dysfunction or per perhaps someone's experienced trauma and they're, you know, suffering from the aftermaths of that. And what yeah. that then represents on the outside of that person, it's, it's maybe behavioral issues or, you know, you know, dysfunction in some kind of a capacity, but because we have such a lack of understanding of mental health awareness within this country, yeah. it becomes a, a, a stigma or it becomes something that people can be punished for instead of maybe more of a holistic approach. Like I'm kind of curious, like if those doctors, instead of being just very narrowly focused on whatever their domain was, if they had done more of a holistic approach to analyzing what the problem was, they probably would have found something a lot sooner. Exactly, Nick. And I will tell you the doctor who stepped in the next day, my dad's doctor, the GP, called me the next day and said to me, obviously, he had read this report, and he said to me very kindly, he asked a gentle, compassionate question. And this is something as a real tip for anyone in a leader, leadership position who's watching someone on their team go through something or behave differently. Just ask a gentle, compassionate question. His was, would you feel more comfortable if I ordered you an MRI? Mm -hmm. And I said, yes. So he, he was asking me, like his, my comfort was more important to him mm -hmm. than him spending the insurance money on this test, for example. Mm -hmm. We did that Saturday, I go and do the MRI. They call the neuro neurologist on call. I've got a small tumor on the brain, but a huge cyst that has grown around it, compressing 50% of the left lobe of my cerebellum. It's wow. growing toward my spinal cord, and I have to get to the hospital right away. There was wow. a physical cause for all of this, yeah.
So had that doctor not said that, and he visited me in the hospital every day, every night, the end of his rounds, nine, 10 o'clock at night, whatever it took, he would come and visit me again. And it's just this opportunity to understand what's going on from a larger perspective. Mm -hmm. That's what we're looking at. We're looking at trying to get a larger perspective. We get entrenched in these small ways of doing things or ways of thinking about things. Now, when I went back to New York, this was my life transition. Mm -hmm. My friends had moved me out of my apartment because my lease was up while I was gone. And now what? Yeah. So here I am standing on the stage, right? But, you know, I didn't know. So these, again, these transitions and these job transitions in particular, they are moments when we can take the opportunity, like you said, to get to know ourselves better and to build something new that is much better aligned and and suited to us. What happened for me, and this is where I see, and this is where my coaching comes in too. I watch life coach us. And I watch life coach us through inner guidance and outer opportunity. The opportunity that came to me in this moment was that a friend said that this acting school started by Academy Award-winning director Mike Nichols and Second City founder Paul Sills, was auditioning. I had done some theater in college. I mostly did a lot of music, actually. I decided to audition, and I got in. Now, my life changed from that point forward. Two years in conservatory-style actor training, and now I'm deep into a, a, a life of creativity and a life where my jobs, my support jobs are going to change all the time. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have to be fluid with that. Mm. That took a lot of courage. When we talk about mental health and needing the courage, it took being sure that I had the support to be able to do this lifestyle of the artist, the creative artist. And it took a real belief in myself that I had the strength, that I could unfold this dream for whatever it was going to be. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. Yeah. I mean, it's such a powerful journey, you know, and at such a young age too. I imagine that must have had such a profound impact on to the trajectory of your life from there on out and, and perhaps even the perspectives that you approach the world with. Exactly. By the time I sort of, because, you know, I'd worked everything from nonprofit to corporate midtown Manhattan, commercial real estate to, you know, really to teaching in in a lot of private schools, as I said. And the last job that I had before I became an entrepreneur, which was the biggest leap, okay? Mm -hmm. Let's just talk about a huge leap, right, of, of, of a job, was that I worked at this prep school, as I said, one of the best in the country for eight years, teaching theater, running the playwriting program, directing shows. And here is where I was able to combine education and the performing arts. And here is where I burned out. Mm. And you would think, well, this is a dream job. And it was a dream job. There's no question. And yet I felt so pushed beyond my limits you know, partly from, definitely partly from the entrenchment of that culture and also partly from the fact that it had gotten inside me. This, and this is what happens with our kids, you know. We internalize this kind mm-hmm. of pressure. And when we internalize it, we can sort of turn against ourselves in a way 
rather than putting ourselves and our health first, we start to tell ourselves things that are not true, that we're not good enough. You know, we're not smart enough. We're not doing enough. And this whole overachievement kind of consciousness, if you will, gets, gets into us and we burn ourselves out. Mm. Yeah, that whole overachievement piece. I think that's a really interesting thing because to me that ties a lot to like this, what Tara Brock's Tara Brock calls like the trance of unworthiness. Another another way of framing that may be like not enoughness. And, you know, in creative arts and expressive types of industries in business, you know, in entrepreneurship, I think we all have this tendency to kind of adopt this idea that like we have to keep working, we have to keep moving. And to your point, at the detriment sometimes of our own well-being and our own mental health. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things that I started focusing on when I left and I became a coach was burnout. Hmm. And I did so when I heard that the people that were my former students, the millennials were getting burned out, people younger getting burned out. I mean, it's one thing if you've lived for a number of decades on the planet and you're, you know, you're kind of weary of it, but you know, the younger people like sort of pushing themselves to that degree, carrying on what they learned when they were younger into the work world And then here they are, and how can they function, and what's sustainable, and where's their joy? Where did their joy go? And where did their creativity go? Mm -hmm. So I ended up focusing on burnout for a while and wrote this Beyond Burnout playbook, taking years of coaching and teaching and all this and just distilling it down into this playful 12-page, here are five keys if you want to move beyond burnout. Mm, that's fantastic, which I've read this playbook and it's been really beautiful, illustrated, just the whole concepts behind it. For those for the folks who haven't had a chance to experience it yet, what are some of the kind of principles that you've come across in the terms of burnout? And like, how does that show up in work? How does that show up in play? How does that show up in other areas of people's lives? Yeah. I think first is this paradigm shift. We we say that burnout is a bad thing. And, and I understand I've been burned out more than once and it is really uncomfortable. And it's also, again, that moment where we can change trajectory and do things differently. And this is best illustrated by in rocket science. In rocket science, there is a fuel tank that is only to get you to the edge of the atmosphere. That's it. It is dropped at the edge of the atmosphere the fuel tank is shifted to another one that gets you the rest of the way of where you want to go. And that moment of dropping that fuel tank is called burnout. Oh, wow. So if we can think of it when, when we are experiencing burnout, that we're dropping an old way of doing things. We're dropping that empty tank that's not going to serve us, the energy that doesn't serve us. Hmm. You know? And we're going toward, we're making an adjustment to, to go toward where we want to go. That's one thing is that paradigm shift of this can be a good thing for me, whether I stay at my job or whether I leave my job. And I've coached people in both directions, find a new position at the same company or stay for a while or leave and find work at a company that shares my values Mm -hmm. or go into business for myself. You know, 
Burnout can be that moment that tells us it's time for a change. Yeah, and what I hear in this as well is it requires almost a different type of fuel also to move forward from that. You know, I I love that. I I didn't realize that that was actually what was the call when they dropped that tank. But, you know, there's there's a couple components there, right? There's like a specific type of fuel that gets you up into the atmosphere. And then also there's the dead weight of the actual like tank itself that needs to be released in order for you to be able to propel yourself forward from there. I can see a lot of parallels in that, too, with just like how we deal with burnout ourselves. I love your term dead weight. That is so true. It's what, what is dropping away. Yeah. It's interesting that a lot of young people that I've coached are at that point where they have been in a corporate setting for a period of time. They're now in their late twenties or early thirties and they are feeling the dead weight. Mm -hmm. They are feeling like I jumped into this. I got trained for it. Um, they're really smart. They're really creative. They were, they were drafted by the best companies and things have changed for them. Mm-hmm. And now they're wondering where do they really want to go and do they want to keep up this pace? Mm-hmm. And this is one thing, one of the five keys that I talk about in the book is pace. No. Because when we lose our own internal rhythm, in essence, we kind of lose control over our life. Mm-hmm. We need to be yeah. able to move at the pace that we can move that's a healthy one. And it may, no, it may no longer be in harmony with the job that we took eight years ago or 12 mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. yeah, that really resonates, you know, because there's a saying that I, I like to bring up quite a bit. And it's something that I think about often myself is like, what got you here is not what's going to get you further. And I mean, that parallels with the the burnout rocket analogy, but, you know, also, you know, that idea of pace, you know, so much of our culture, the pace of life is dictated by other things, you know, shareholders, you know, growth at all costs, you know, move fast and break things, you know, especially in the tech world, which is where I came from. So much of this is about this accelerated pace of existence and you're always on particularly within corporate space, a lot of folks that I speak to, it's like they're back to back to back meetings all day, five o'clock rolls around, and now they finally have time to actually do their work. And then there becomes this like issue with balance. There's this issue with like, you know, finding harmony between life and work and play. And I think it's a really hard pill for some people to swallow, to think about, well, I've been able to perform like this for years and now suddenly I'm in my mid thirties or my early forties and that pace of life no no longer works for me. And it becomes this existential moment, this liminal moment where they have to then suddenly come up with new ways to fuel themselves, new ways to look about, look, look at themselves and new ways to think about how to move forward from there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's where a coach who matches you is that's a perfect moment for coaching to come in. It really, it's a special relationship in the, you know, it's important to find the person with whom you feel you can do this work, you Mm -hmm. know, and that's, but this is the work of the discovery. It is the work of the envisioning, the illumination, the inspiration, and then the, the sort of micro practice of the steps that will, help you get there. It has to be practical. It mm-hmm. also can be really playful. And mm-hmm. it's it's the play that allows it to to your joy to return. Mm-hmm. One of the things I ask people when I first work with them is what do you enjoy? Mm-hmm. That, are you doing that at all? You know, 
It's like yeah. what happened to the the painting or the hiking or the surfing or or the working with kids or being around animals or whatever it is, because joy is a fuel that never runs out. Mm -hmm. Every time we tap into joy, it's there. So it's never going to run out. And that's going to be at least part of the personal fuel that gets you there. Um, and the professional fuel, well, that depends on what direction you go in. Mm -hmm. So you can discover yeah. that as well. Yeah. And I think this point of joy is like a really important one. And, you know, it, it's something that I, I hear a lot of my clients struggle with where they've kind of set joy aside. They've set, you know, yeah. aside the things that really sparked their interest that, that lit them up as human beings. And they've kind of focused more on like duty or like the obligations. I was literally just talking with somebody about this yesterday. He's like, I want to pivot into another career. I actually want to get into coaching and consulting, but I have this obligation, this mortgage, these kids going into college, we'd have to radically change our lifestyles or we're just not ready to do that yet. And it creates this like really interesting tension, I think in people's lives where there's this like awareness of what they've sacrificed or what they have let go of in order to like live this particular type of life that maybe not doesn't fit them well but they don't quite have the maybe the language or the skills or the mindset that will allow them to be able to move out of that experience and, and yes. perhaps experiment with something else like entrepreneurship where they might be able to have exactly the same types of lifestyle, but yeah. more freedom and more time and more joy and happiness and, and all yeah. those things. Is that something similar to kind of what you've noticed and experienced? Yes, I definitely have. And that's why the transition, right? That's why this special transition time, because we can make smooth transitions. We can phase out one thing while phasing in another. You know, again, the, the set on the turntable, it turns, right? Mm -hmm. And so we, as long as we can take care of ourselves, as long as we can stay healthy, as long as we can, and when I say healthy, I mean, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, as long as we can stay and accept a certain flow and stay open, then the, the pace of the transition can also work for us mm -hmm. rather than against us. It doesn't have to be that we transition at that same breakneck pace that we've been used mm -hmm. to. Do you know what I'm saying? It can, yeah. it can take a little time. It can be more pastel colored, you know, where it smooths in. Um, kind of like, I know you do DJ, right? So when you go from mm -hmm. one song to another, right? What is that yeah. called when you kind it's of just a cross transition, actually? They're crossfading. Crossfading. Okay. There you yeah. go. Yeah. It's like crossfading the, the records, right? Yeah. And, and, and so for a while, it may even sound almost a little dissonant while, you know, just for a moment while it's the mm -hmm. next song is coming in. But yeah, I love that analogy too, because, you know, as a DJ, you know, when you're mixing beats together and let's say you have two different songs that you're trying to put together and the beats are slightly off or slightly different when you're not transitioning or crossfading that correctly, what you end up is what, what's called a train wreck, you know, oh. it basically, you know, all this music, all these sounds kind of collide on top of one another and yeah. it breaks the rhythm of the dancing that's occurring and like the, the connection wow. to the music that's occurring within the audience. And I think that's so much of what I noticed with so many of my clients is that they're, they're, they have tried before until reaching out for a coach for support mm -hmm. to make some sort of a transition and maybe they do it too quickly and they end up with like a train wreck essentially yeah. and 
in my own experience, what I've noticed is that those big moments of transition, they had to play out over, in some cases, years. And it was only in hindsight that I realized that that transition was actually occurring over a long period of time where my mind, my body, my soul, my spirit, all of these things had to align in a way that allowed me to be prepared for that final moment, which was like the changeover where that new music started to play. Wow. How beautifully said. I, I do love how the creative arts play into create metaphors for and teach us so many things. You know, you and I are both part of this changing work collective. You very much so in co-founding it. And <laughs> yeah. I, I love the changing work collective and I am the co-coordinator of the um, creative arts cohort within the collective. Tim Van Ness and I do this together and we continue to look for ways where we can bring some of these lessons of theater and art and music, just like you and I are talking about right now, mm-hmm. into the corporate setting so that we can help corporate executives to see things differently and to open up a different part of the brain to actually find solutions that would never have occurred without going through some kind of creative process together. So I love that that's part of what the collective is doing and that you and and Scott shoot are both open to that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, beyond open, I think it's like a necessary component. You know, I think one of the things that I've really advocated for within corporate spaces is play and creativity. I mean, I think that's what allows for innovation to happen. That's what ha- mm-hmm. allows for connectivity and receptivity to occur. I'm kind of curious from your perspective, you know, what would you say the role of creative arts is within the workplace? You know, in so many instances, it seems like this is something that's been kind of extracted or removed yes. from the corporate workplace or sanitized from the workplace. Yeah. What, what's your thinking on that? I would love to see that just like we're talking about the transition that might need to take time or the crossfade. I would love to see it come into the the corporate arena. An example of how that could happen, for example, with leadership is this paradigm of looking at the leader, the team leader as a theater director, for example. Mm -hmm. We share so much in common and we just don't know each other well enough, you know, but we share so much in common. So for example, a, a theater director must be able to communicate, articulate the vision clearly. And so does a team leader, the overall vision, the big picture. When the whole team, when the whole cast and crew can see the same vision, well, then we're all in, we're all in and creating this same beautiful work of art, really. The other thing is casting. So a theater director needs to cast really well. Now, Mike Nichols used to tell us that casting was 90% of the success of his film, Mm. of his films. 90% is a high, you know, that's high percentage. And to the extent that a team leader has, you know, sometimes there's the HR department and there's, I'm sure there's back and forth and so on. But to the extent that a team leader can help cast the right tasks to the right people on the team and see the, see the genius in, in the different players and, and cast that well, it's going to go well. Mm. And then the third thing is the ability, of course, to, to bring out the best in your actors, mm. bring out the best in your team through different kinds of encouragement and things like that. Then there's all the production values, all the nuts and bolts, 
that a team leader is responsible for and that a theater director is responsible for backstage, overseeing lighting and, and costumes and you know making all these decisions. Ultimately, we in theater and, and corporate executives and team leaders want to produce not only what meets the brief, I would hope that we would be free enough to produce not only what meets the brief, but what is artistically beautiful. Mm. And I think that's such an important, that last statement, artistically beautiful. You know, I, there, there's something for me about creative arts, music, performance, that, that is slightly different than a current understanding of corporate America, where it's output, it's launches, it's productivity, it's, you know, metrics. And of course, all of those things are important in the creative arts as well. But, you know, this idea that, you know, we can infuse more livelihood and more effervescence, if you will, into the workplace in a way that makes people feel connected to the process where it's not just about outputting something, but it's about expression. It's about, you know, pouring themselves into it in a healthy way. I'm kind of curious your thoughts on that. Boy, I love that. I love the way that you've just said that. Yes. And that's what we're exploring right now in the Changing Work Collective in the Creative Arts Cohort. It's like, what kind of activities could we bring to a team that would help create just what you're talking about? What is it in the artistic world? What is it that about what we do that we can help others do so that so that the performance is, as we said, artistically beautiful? And mm -hmm. so that everyone feels that sense of, you know, in theater, I always used to talk about it with the cast and crew of honor the playwright, mm -hmm. honor the playwright, honor the story. So we had this singular focus of service. Mm. And I think that may be missing. It certainly was when I was in the corporate setting that that people talked about wanting to serve, mm -hmm. but there was always an agenda behind that, you know? Yeah. So it's how how can we all serve this performance? Yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah. I can scratch the surface on that a little bit too. You know, I think both with this idea of serving the playwright or having a, a director who is able to bring the best out of their actors. Yeah. You know, let's let's call that a manager or a leader. Yep. yep. That requires empathy, that requires compassion, yep. that requires yep. attunement and the ability to listen to what's happening and observe and encourage and coach and move people forward. You know, if you just scream and yell at somebody, you know, in, in, in any of those environments or bully them into trying to do the way things the way that you want them to do, you're not going to get an, a beautiful performance. You're not going to get a, an artistic expression there. You're going to get just disgruntled mess, you know, more, more than likely, <laughs> you know, and Mike Nichols, I think is a really interesting example of that because like, from my understanding, you know, so many of his pieces, so much of his, his work is, is character driven. So it requires yes. like this deep understanding of human psychology and requires a connection to that. that yeah. I think so many leaders today within the corporate space haven't really allowed themselves to pick up and learn. Yeah. I do think that it's something that anyone can learn, that anyone yeah. has the capacity to, 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 to move into that. But I think it requires the will and the courage to actually be vulnerable and open themselves up in order to be able to do that. It is an incredibly courageous thing to do. It really is. And I think you're right as well. I really do believe that it's something that is trainable, learnable, um, and, and it's, 
if you want to talk about psychological safety, mm-hmm. directors, film directors, theater directors, absolutely know how to create that safety. Mm-hmm. And they have to, to get the highest level of creativity mm-hmm. from the people that they're working with. Now, I am... I always tell people, for example, who are burned out, you know, ultimately we're responsible for creating our own psychological safety. Mm. So if you're in a situation that's not that, then that may be the red flag that it's not for you, you know. However, when you have a leader who can do that, well, <laughs> then everything just turns out, turns out beautiful. It does. Mm-hmm. It turns out beautifully. So I know we talk a little bit about creative arts and the work that we're doing within the Changing Work Collective to try to help propagate this idea of creative arts within the workplace uh, as a way to help people be more innovative, to be more connected, to have a greater sense of belonging. If I'm not mistaken, you also have a blog that talks a little bit about these things as well. I do. Yes, I do. You know, sometimes we were talking about transitions and how sometimes it's a sense of uh, being in the dark. You know, I'm just kind of like all the lights have gone out and everything's crumbling and I'm in the dark. I don't know what to do. I'm sure you have worked with several clients that that, that have this. Mm-hmm. And the blog is called Living as Music. It is navigating more easily through the art and science of sound. Mm. What I like to share with people who feel like they can't see forward is it's okay if you can't see right now, because you can follow the sound. Mm. And what I'm exploring in the blog is, is the wonder of sound and how we're changed by listening to different things and how different sounds can actually help us learn how to make daily life easier. So Mm. as an example, NASA scientists teamed up with musicians to turn sound waves into, to turn light waves into sound waves and created this Milky Way symphony is what it's called. And it is an amazing piece to listen to. And by listening and experiencing it, I find, and others who've experienced it, find that we're changed by listening to this sound that's in the Milky Way. When we can, as this example, go bigger, wider, deeper, we can get a sense of perspective that our daily challenges shrink. Hmm. We can get a sense that we're not alone in the universe, which a lot of people feel, Mm -hmm. but rather that we too are stardust. That's science. (laughs) We are physically made up of the atoms of stars and that we can, for example, listen today, listen today to the sounds around us as part of this universal music. This is just one example of what I'm exploring with sound. And, and I have a blog about human sonar too. Like do humans have a sonar the way whales and dolphins do? Yeah, we kind of do. When we can't see what happens, we go on intuition, we go on gut instinct, we go on things that are actually more vibrationally related, which is sound. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. So it, there's this sense that we can always, um, through music, find our way when we're in those places where we can't see. I love that. Yeah. And, and tied to that too. I mean, you know, you talk about the, the Milky Way symphony and, you know, these, the sense of being you know, part of something greater than yourself, you know, it sounds to me like what you're talking about is awe and like cultivating awe as a, as a mechanism for self-exploration and for self-discovery. Yeah. When we recognize what's really going on again, it's that our, do we have this really small, tiny perspective or are we opening up, being open-minded, having an awareness, an open-mindedness that allows us to break free of what we're telling ourselves that's not true? Because we are enough, because we are bigger. Yes, it is awe. There is no doubt. I mean, if we really look at the world around us, and I can look outside right now and see the snow and you know, really just taking a moment to expand our view, then we can appreciate and have gratitude for this life that we have and see from that perspective, that's going to always lead us to the best and highest path. There's no question. Hmm. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And, and so I'm curious too, you know, Emma, you know, if you were going to recommend to somebody that's, you know, perhaps struggling with one of these moments of transition or they're finding themselves feeling depleted or burnt out and they're curious about like, you know, what the steps are and how to listen to that music, you know, what, what would you recommend to folks? Well, certainly you can read my blog. That'll help. <laughs> and the Beyond Burnout Playbook has five keys to burnout, but really is first, give yourself permission. Mm. Give yourself permission to experience where you are right now and accept that it's okay. And not only is it okay, it's probably a good thing, even though it mm. feels uncomfortable. Be willing to take good care of yourself. I think the one of the turning points in the book is simply this place of recognition of self-respect. You know, we call it self-love and self-respect. I like to say self-respect. If you think of the person for, for a moment just now, think of the person you most love. Well, actually, maybe it's a, a person, animal, place, thing that you most love. And if you can see yourself in that same light, if you can give yourself that same respect, mm -hmm. that's the place to be coming from. Mm -hmm. Give yourself that permission. Give yourself the respect. Be willing to be as courageous as you can be and get whatever help you need. You're not wrong. <laughs> you know, you're not not enough. Mm -hmm. You are all that you need to be in this moment. And there is a bright, a bright future for you. There really is. I can't think of a better way to end actually than that statement. You know, I'm kind of <laughs> curious, you know, Emma, if folks want to reach out to you and they want to learn more about your work, if they want to get support with their own transition, or if they're interested in exploring creative arts and living as music, how, how do people find you? Yeah, you can find me at lifeiscoachingyou.com. 
You can also find me as livingasmusic.com. It will take you directly to the blog. And the Beyond Burnout Playbook is there too, beyondburnoutplaybook.com. I'm on LinkedIn as well. You could always direct message me on LinkedIn. And that's where you can find me. This is so enjoyable, Nick. I just (laughs) really enjoy talking to you and appreciate so much what you're doing with your podcast, allowing the platform. I appreciate that. I mean, it's only because of folks like yourself that this is even possible. So thank you for all the work that you're doing in the world, for the support that you're giving to folks who are struggling with their own transitions. And obviously for all of the contributions that you're offering to the Changing Work Collective to breathe more creative arts into that space. It's so important and it's so needed. And I'm just very grateful for you. So thank you for being here. You are very welcome. And I can't wait to hear you DJ sometime. Yeah, it'll come soon. Very soon. Yeah. Yeah. So folks, if you're interested, again, in hearing more from Emma or to connect with her, the links to her websites and her LinkedIn page and other things like that will be in the show notes below. Uh, I'm also going to look up and see if I can find a link to that Milky Way Symphony. So folks can also listen to that as well. And as always, if you have additional questions or thoughts about other guests that you'd like to hear from, other topics you'd like to hear about, feel free to reach out. Hello at NicholasWhitaker.com. And stay tuned for the next episode of the Needs Improvement Podcast. It'll be coming out in a few weeks. Thank you so much. All right, that's a wrap for today's episode of the Needs Improvement Podcast. If our conversation resonated with you, do us a favor, share this episode with your network. We'll be back next month diving even deeper into what needs improvement in the modern workplace. Until then, take what you've learned and make your workplace a better place to be. See you soon.